right, for those who may be visiting with us, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and generally we'll do a verse-by-verse study or an exposition of the text, and we started chapter 1 back in 2019, I think, sometime around that time. We're currently in chapter 12, uh, almost out of chapter 12, and uh, Lord willing, we'll make it through chapter 16 one day, but that day will not be today or anytime soon. Uh, Pastor Dave went out of town with his family this past week, so in order that he could enjoy his time with his family, um, I'll be filling in this morning. So rather than the Gospel of Mark, our text will be found in 1 Samuel chapter 28, where we will see Saul going to the witch at Endor, asking her to summon Samuel from the dead. Uh, Would you please stand for the reading of the inerrant, infallible, and sufficient Word of God. As Albert Martin says, we'll be reading all 25 verses without apology. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will, now I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah as his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, There is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, 
Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you might have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God of truth, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures. For by your word you make the simple wise. You give understanding to the ignorant. We are often ignorant, and we often lack understanding. And so we ask that you would deliver us from cold hearts, deliver us from wandering thoughts, grant that your word would be profitable to its hearers this morning, that its eternal truth would be written upon our hearts, to be a lamp unto our feet, and to carry us through the rest of the days that you give to us. We ask these things in Christ's name, and for his sake. Amen. Maybe seated. All right. To bring us up to speed, maybe refresh our minds. Uh, for some who may not be quite as familiar uh, with this text or what is going on that led to these events, I want to give um, some background and kind of set the stage. Um, I know the Old Testament can seem quite strange uh, and foreign to us, um, and it can often leave us with many questions. Um, the New International Commentary on the Old Testament uh, says this, that the past is like another country. They do things differently there. And I think many would find those words to ring true. The Old Testament is filled with all kinds of strange imagery. It's full of people whose uh, names we cannot pronounce, um, locations that have no relevance to us in this small town in southern Ohio. There are cultural norms and practices that are very different than our own. And then in this text, you throw a necromancer into the mix, uh, where suddenly Samuel rises from the dead. Uh, that really compounds and can add to our confusion as what is going on here? What is the purpose of this text? We can come away from texts like this and ask ourselves, is there any relevance for the Christian life? What does this teach me about God? How does this apply to my life 
as an individual. And just to put your minds at ease, there is much we can learn about God from the Old Testament, and there is vital importance for the Christian contained in these words we have just read. After all, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And as we learned, or we're reminded of in question four of the Baptist Catechism a few Sunday evenings ago, uh, both the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God, and they are the only certain rule of faith and obedience. Okay, so there's much for us here this morning. Uh, but before we get to our text, again, a brief uh, summary of kind of what has brought us to this moment in time. Uh, Samuel was a prophet, and he was the last acting judge over Israel. We recall the book of Judges takes place in the days when Israel had no king ruling over them. The Lord had given them judges, and judges were individuals uh, who God would raise up to deliver Israel out of the hands of their oppressors. Um, and as the book of Judges goes on, the people would often uh, whore after pagan gods. They'd be oppressed by Gentile nations. God would raise a judge to deliver them. Uh, then they would go back to sin. They would be oppressed. God would raise a judge and deliver them, and so on and so forth. And that goes on throughout the book of Judges. And eventually, the people of Israel uh, desired a king to rule over them. And Samuel was the last of these judges. And so Samuel, as the last judge, by the Lord's command, anointed Saul to be the first over earthly king over Israel. And this is a very pivotal moment for the tribes of Israel, right? They have transitioned from being a sort of a tribal confederacy where the tribes of Israel would kind of join together to fight against the Philistines with, and the Canaanites with no king. Um, and Saul being crowned king is the start of Israel's transition into a, a now theonomic monarchy, meaning they would have a king, and that king was to rule in accordance with God's commands. It was to be understood that God was truly the king of the people, and the earthly king's decree should be in line with the revealed will of God. Uh, that is the ideal situation. Now, God spoke through Samuel, and he warned tribes of Israel, uh, saying that if you take a king, he will oppress you. He will not be a righteous man. He will send your men off to war that do not want to go to war. He will take resources from you, and he will fund his own campaigns. Uh, but ultimately, they didn't care. They desired to have an earthly man who would look the part of a powerful ruler um, to stand as an example to the other nations. So the Lord gives them a king, and this king is Saul. And during Saul's reign comes David. We all know who David is, right? David and Goliath. This is King David. Um, he became known as a great warrior. And Samuel had prophesied that David would one day be king over Israel. And David also, he had great pursuits in his, in his battles. And so this made Saul very jealous. Saul did not like David. In the streets, the people would sing, Saul has struck down thousands, and David his ten thousands. So in response to that, Saul tried to kill David many times, and David fled. And so David ended up being taken in by the Philistines and acted as a double agent of sorts at, at this point in time. He would go out and fight, and while he was away, he would, he would uh, kill Canaanites, but the Philistines thought he was with them, battling against the Israelites. 
And so as we come to this text in chapter 28, David is now presently with the Philistines, and Saul is at Gilboa with all of Israel. That is a super condensed, maybe spark notes version of what happened here. I encourage you, read through this book. It's very good, very interesting. So with that said, let's begin now with verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So here is the setting for David. He is with Achish, who is the Philistine king of Gath. And while David is hiding from Saul, Achish, the king of Gath, gives some refuge to David. He treated him rather well. And this poses a problem for David. This puts him in a bit of a, a conundrum. Uh, verse 1 tells us that the Philistines had gathered forces for war to fight against Israel, the very people that David was to rule over. And David responds. He says, he says uh, Achish tells David, go with me to fight these people. And David says, very well, you know what your servant can do. Uh, he's not straightforward. He doesn't say, yes, I will fight. He says, very well, you know what I'm capable of, but um, that's not really a direct answer to uh, the command that Achish has given to him. I imagine David is probably weighing his options here. He could go with Achish, kill his own people, or he could disregard the king's command and be killed for it, or he could go into combat as bodyguard and maybe try to kill Achish there, but um, his options are very limited. Ultimately, he must kill Achish or risk being killed himself. So this is the predicament that David is in in the first two verses. And then uh, the narrative shifts and changes from a focus on David to Saul. Now, David, in his dilemma, he's not a perfectly righteous man. He sins often in, in various ways. And you'll see his life, there's ebbs and flows where he trusts God, denies God, trusts God. Um, but ultimately, we see that David's response to these issues is, Lord, I trust you as my God and King. I will let you do what you see fit. That is David's response with these kinds of issues that he runs into. But now we see Saul's dilemma in verse 3 through 5. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So what was Saul's dilemma? In verse 4, we see that the Philistines are encamped at Shunem, and Saul was at Gilboa. Uh, this is better known as Mount Gilboa. This is a mountain range, and this is roughly 8 to 10 miles south of Shunem, where the Philistines have settled in preparation for war. And when Saul saw the armies, he trembled greatly. This is the distress of Saul. He knows that one day, it's been told of him already, that the kingdom will be ripped out of his hands. And so, out of fear for his life and to bring peace to his soul, he tries to find an answer. What should I do now that these Philistines are encamped coming against me and I'm going to lose this kingdom? Uh, verse 3 mentions, uh, verse 3 mentions during this time that uh, Samuel, the final judge over Israel, had been dead. 
and he's been dead for quite some time. And sometime between Samuel's death and Saul's encampment at Mount Gilboa, one of the edicts that Saul puts in place was to have the necromancers put out of the land. Uh, necromancers are those who would summon demons or the souls of the dead to receive insight for future events, to gain so, some sort of knowledge. Um, and necromancy is not really all that foreign of a concept to us. Uh, there are self-professed necromancers today. Um, there's a whole slew of television shows about those who can supposedly speak to the dead or conjure up ghosts or spirits by their, their seances or Ouija boards or whatever else uh, demonic ritual that they can conceive of. And so at some point, Saul sent an edict out to have necromancers banished from the land. And, and this is a good law, right, to remove these people from the land. Uh, Saul's order to have the people who participated in these evil practices killed was good because it was in accordance with the law that was given to them, Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. Uh, when you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall, not, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. The Lord calls this an abomination. What is an abomination? I know we hear that often. Well, an abomination is that which is morally reprehensible. It is unequivocally detestable. Simply put, this means that God hates this. It's disgusting to him. It's vile, and those who practice abominable acts are objects of scorn and contempt. Don't misunderstand me. God hates all sin. He must because he is holy. But there are certain sins that God uses such strong language for, and here we see that to practice divination, fortune-telling, sorcery, necromancy, and all the like, uh, they are called abominations, something if you may have noticed in Deuteronomy. Uh, child sacrifices are mentioned. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter in the offering. It was common to cause children to walk between two flames as a sort of a purification ritual or rite unto Moloch, but there are also times that children will be offered as a burnt sacrifice. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Uh, uh, abortion is an abomination, but that's not the purpose of the sermon this evening, but it is certainly there. So Saul has issued an edict to cut off all necromancers from the land, and this is important as we consider all the events that transpire in the coming verses. And so, again, the setting is that Saul is fearful for his life. He is, uh, his removal from the throne that he sits on is likely um, coming upon him very quickly, and so what does he do? He tries to inquire of the Lord to find out what he should do. This is verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So in Saul's distress, he inquired of God as to what he needed to do, and the Lord did not answer him. The Lord did not answer him by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Uh, to be clear, these are all appropriate methods to inquire of God at this point in time within redemptive history. God often spoke to kings by dreams, 
in the Old Testament. But God would not speak to Saul by dreams when he inquired of him. Nor did God speak to Saul by the Urim. Uh, that is the Urim and Thummim. This is uh, God's way of speaking through the priests. Uh, the Urim and Thummim were two gemstones that were kept in the priest's ephod. And they were used in times when they desired to know what the will of the Lord was. So uh, they were maybe kind of like dice. Uh, you would roll them and the way they would land, they would say, this is uh, God's hand has been upon this and this is what we ought to do. But God did not speak to him by the priests who held the Urim and Thummim. And this asks something we need to consider is why wouldn't God speak to Saul by um, But God would not speak to him by the priests who held the Urim and Thummim, and uh, God would not speak to Saul by the prophets either, right? So God would not speak by these appropriate means that he used to speak to people in the Old Testament. And so why wouldn't God speak to Saul when he inquired of them? I'm sure we're all wondering. Well, it's because Saul despised God's word. Saul wasn't really all that interested in what God had to say. His Motives for seeking God was to preserve his own life, to prolong his rule over Israel, even though it had already been told to him through the prophet Samuel that God was going to tear the kingdom from his hands in chapter 15. Now, if Saul had gone to God in faith with sincere repentance, with a desire to bring honor to the Lord in his life, I'm certain that God would have answered him. But because Saul remained obstinate to God and his word, the Lord had departed from him. What we need to know about Saul, and this is important, is that Saul had God's word before him throughout his entire life as king. And he did absolutely nothing with the words that God had given to him. Saul said he wanted to hear from God at this point in time, but he did absolutely nothing with the words that God had already spoken to him. Saul rejected God. Saul rejected God's word. And so God rejected Saul. How obstinate was Saul to the word of God? Well, in chapter 22, he had all the priests killed out of fear they were conspiring against him. So, of course, God wouldn't speak by the priests. Saul had all the priests killed, with the exception of Abathar, who had taken the ephod with him, um, which had the Urim and Thummim in it, and fled to David. He refused to hear the words of the prophet Samuel, while he was alive, I think Saul may be an example of one who has been given over to a reprobate mind. It does appear that Saul meets these criteria that we see in Romans 1. He has all these things spoken to him by God, and he denies it. He rejects it. Romans 1, these are some verses pulled from there. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. Uh, this is speaking of just general revelation that people generally know that God exists by the evidence of creation, but they don't want to know who that God is. They reject that God, and so God gives them over to the lust of their hearts. And how much worse condemnation is it for Saul, who he knows who God is, it's been revealed to him, and he still rejects God. He's been given a hardened heart, and I believe a reprobate mind. Saul rejected the prophetic, the priestly, and kingly means by which God would speak to his people. And so God no longer spoke 
to Saul. He cried out to God, not out of love for God, but out of love for himself, and there was silence. Many unbelievers come running to God when they want relief from the temporal consequences of their sin, or they want a better life, as if Jesus is just a, another notch in their belt to improve themselves. But God does not hear them. Many think of God as a genie, that if they say the right words and do the right things, they can manipulate God to get what they want, but God does not answer them because they do not love God. They love what they think God can offer them. But for those who have come to an end of themselves, who feel the weight of their sin, for those who, who feel the weight of their sin, God does hear the call of those who come sincerely with repentant hearts. While temporal goods are not promised to, to all people, to anyone, eternal life is freely offered to all who come upon the name of Jesus in faith. So we must ask ourselves now at this point in time, how are we like Saul? What do we do with God's word? We know that God no longer speaks by these means that were used throughout the Old Testament, uh, dreams, the Urim, Thummim, the prophets. There are no more apostles today. So how does God speak to us today? Well, he has now spoken to us finally and ultimately by his word. And the word which became flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king. So the question for us is, what do we do with Jesus Christ and the words which speak of him? What do we do with the Holy Scriptures? Uh, believers, have we been like Saul and run off those who have tried to issue warnings found in the word of God? The same way that Saul killed the priests, have we cut those off who intend our spiritual good? Have we been stubborn to receive correction? Do we with stiff necks go about our lives with no regard to the Lord's commands? Is there some area in our lives that, that we may say, Lord, you can have everything else but not this one, not this one thing. I know what your word says and how I should change how I think about these things, but this particular in my life to change, this is too costly for me. Is there any of you that hold close to your heart, that hold a sin close to your heart that you wouldn't dare turn from? Christian, don't be like Saul. Take God's word seriously. Cherish the word. Delight in it. It makes us wise unto salvation. And Saul is a warning to you. It's a warning to us of what can happen when people reject God's word. Unbelievers, do you reject Jesus Christ, the prophet, the priest, and the king? The only one who can save you from your sins? Have you cut off all Christian influence in your life because you don't want to be bothered by the things of eternal significance? If that is you, you are in a very dangerous place. The Lord has been gracious in bringing you here today so that you may hear the offer of free salvation in Christ Jesus. So will you reject Christ? Will you deny God and his word? So Saul is fearful for his life at this point of time and time. And he has rejected God's word and being eager to receive some form of instruction as to, what he must do, as to what he must do to be delivered from the hands of the Philistines. 
Saul goes to a medium. We see this in verse 7 through 9. Then Saul says to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And a servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments, and he went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Now it appears that there is a medium who has successfully flown under the radar as to not be seen prolonging her life and escaping execution under Saul's edict. Since the Lord will no longer speak to Saul, he thinks it's appropriate to now go to this medium and speak to her, this one who does abominable acts. As Matthew Henry puts it in his commentary, Since Saul can discern no comfort either from heaven or earth, he resolves to knock at the gates of hell to see if any there will befriend him and give him advice. There are four brief, brief things I want us to notice about Saul's running to this medium. First, and probably the most obvious, the foolishness of Saul's actions. He received no word from God, and so he took matters into his own hand, telling his soldiers to find a medium. God would not speak, so he went knocking at the gates of hell, as Henry says, hoping to receive a good word or a good fortune, a, good com a word of comfort from the dead, which could serve to ease his troubled conscience. Saul does not go here from Saul does not hear from God, so he tries to find an answer elsewhere. And he thinks he will find it from those who dabble in sorcery. God won't speak. I guess I'll look elsewhere. What does this teach us? Well, one minister I heard put it this way: if you reject God, all you have left is the devil. If you reject God's word, the only word left for you is from the mouth of Satan. There is one way that salvation may be known, and it is through Jesus Christ. All other religions, worldviews, ideologies are pretenders. They may seem right to you. They may make you feel good, but there is no life in them. If you reject God's word, all other sources of so-called spiritual enlightenment are from the devil. Saul rejects God, and so off to the demonic he goes. Second thing I want us to see is Saul's hypocrisy. Now, I think this is probably the most evidence, evident uh, since it, it basically jumps right out at the pages of us, doesn't it? We learn that Saul had banished necromancers and mediums from the land. And then, so what does Saul do after these people are banned? Well, he goes to a medium. Now, I'm aware that Pastor Dave preached on the sin of hypocrisy last week, so I'm not going to attempt to do a full treatment on the sin. Um, but I did decide that I was going to preach on this text uh, over a month ago, not considering or knowing that Dave would be preaching on hypocrisy last week. So, uh, so we have it that the Lord in his providence has ordained that this sin will be mentioned two weeks in a row. Uh, it is fitting that we take this sin seriously since we are now being reminded of it two weeks in a row. So, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is one whose speech and actions are contrary to one another. 
He says, but he will not do. The individual calls others to obey, but he will not obey himself. He teaches, but he will not heed his own instruction. He desires to be looked well upon, but not to do well himself. Again, I love how Pastor Dave put it last week. Do we desire to be seen as holy, or do we desire to be holy? Do we lust after the applause of men while in secrecy of our own hearts? We, we willfully plunge ourselves headlong into that which God has forbidden. Do we rightly call sexual perversion and homosexuality what it is, that it is an abomination, while willingly giving ourselves over to other types of sexual sins, which are likewise forbidden? For those who are Sabbatarians, do we outwardly obey the fourth commandment for mere human recognition, doing things publicly like coming to the church to be seen, staying away from restaurants and shopping so other people won't see us doing those things, while really in our hearts and throughout the day paying no mind to the private ministry of God's word. Do our lives look like Saul's? Are we hypocrites? Saul looked like a good king in appearance. He played the part very well, but there was no fear of God in him. Third thing I want us to see, uh, the way that he goes to his sin. He goes in the night. He takes off his kingly robes. He dresses like a soldier or common peasant, and he goes in secret. He goes in the shadows. Again, this is a feature of hypocrisy. The hypocrite will do that which ought to be done in public, to be commended and honored for his good work, but when nobody is watching, the sinful workings of the heart come to bear, and he goes to a secret place that he cannot be seen, that he might not be found out. How do we use the shadows of night to cover and hide our sins? It is fitting that Saul would go into the night. When we sin, we are participating in the works of darkness, and we're better to commit these crimes than in the cover of night where no one can see us. Need I remind you, brothers and sisters, that God knows all things. We cannot hide from God. He knows our hearts. He is the judge of the secrets. Though what Saul was doing was a secret to the rest of Israel at the time, and though the medium did not even know whom she was consulting that it was in fact Saul, God knew that this was Saul. And he could not hide from him, even as he removed his kingly robes and went under the cover of night. No man can hide from God. And fourth, the, the resolve that he had to practice this sin. Again, this is another feature of a hypocrite. Having a resolve to do that which should not be done. Saul's journey to indoors about 15 to 20 miles. Just to give you a little bit of perspective here. Uh, he had to travel around the Philistines' encampment at Shunem to get to Endor, right? So you had Gilboa, you had Shunem, and you had Endor, and Saul has to go 15 to 20 miles, kind of sneak past the, encampment, past the encampment of the Philistines to get to Endor. He had time to consider what he was doing. At any moment, he could have stopped and said, the thing that I aim to do is evil. I must turn from it and honor God, and yet he does not he marches to his sin in a disguise in the cover of night. Now, 
to be clear, I'm not saying a Christian will never do these things. Christians can do some heinous things. I think every one of us has been two-faced at one time or another. But as Christians, we must struggle with our sin, and we will struggle throughout our entire lives. But it must be a battle. It must be a struggle. But for the hypocrite, the hypocrite has no battle. There is no resistance to the sin. He perpetually runs to it in secret with no desire to change or to turn from it. The hypocrite, like Saul, outlaws necromancers by day, and he travels 20 miles to dine with them by night. After Saul's, journeys, after Saul's journey, he arrives to the witch at Endor, verses 9 and 10. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. This medium has no idea that this is Saul, yet suspects he may be setting a trap for her so she may be killed. But Saul reassures her, and he makes an oath. An oath is a promise or an agreement between two people whereby you invoke the name of God, that God would be witness to the agreement. We are familiar with oaths, right? We make oaths in the courtroom. Swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. What we are saying when we invoke the name of God is that if I break my word, let God's judgment come down upon me, for he is able to do so. Not all oaths are unlawful. Not all vows are unlawful. They can be good. But this is what we would call an unlawful oath. Saul himself has a history of unlawful and rash oaths and vows. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And it is in this oath that we see Saul has such a high view of himself. He esteems himself. He presumptuously reassures that although Saul has issued an edict to punish all necromancers, that Saul, who was him, that she did not know, that he would not punish her. He takes it upon himself to promise security to the one who has broken the same law that he has put into place. He breaks the third commandment in doing so. He swore by God's name that she would be safe. Now, Saul may have been able to promise wrongfully that he would not harm her, but he cannot protect her from the wrath of God. Saul has no eye for the divine justice of God, who will certainly bring judgment down upon her if she should not repent. And so Saul is foolish. He's way out of bounds. Not only that, but think of the irony of the scene, this whole picture here, that it is the pagan witch who reminds Saul of God's law. I have to wonder if Saul even considered the fact that the he, the king over Israel, who was supposed to worship the one true God and obey him, was in a sense being rebuked were condemned by a witch. Something we see is that Saul and the medium are not, not all that different either. Saul and the medium have a common foe and that they have a common fear. And the fear is the judgment of men. The witch fears that the king of Israel, fears what the king of Israel will do to her. And Saul fears what the king of the Philistines 
will do to him. They have no concern for the judgment of God and what will become of them should either of them fall to the hands of a just God. This is the carnal heart on display. Wicked men can certainly fear the temporal consequences of their sin, but they have no eye to the eternal judgment of God. They don't desire God's smile to be on them, neither Saul nor the witch. Although they are both sinning against God, heinously, it seems to me that Saul is likely in a far more dangerous position than the witch at Endor at this time, because Saul's not ignorant of these things, and the Lord has rejected him. Verse 11 through 14. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. So being assured of her safety, she agrees and asks Saul whom she should conjure up from the dead. And he asks her to bring up Samuel. Samuel. And so uh, she did the ritual, the seance or whatever hocus pocus it may have been. The scriptures do not tell us exactly what she did to bring Samuel up or what her general routine would have been. Uh, some commentators say that the ritual was uh, so vile and heinous that the authors of Scripture didn't even bother to put it there. All we know is that she said her words, she did the thing, and Samuel came forth, which now brings forth a question I'm sure you all are wondering. Was this really Samuel? Was this medium able to bring Samuel up from the dead? Uh, there are obviously varying opinions on this. Some say, yes, it was Samuel. Some would say it was the devil or one of his demons disguised as Samuel. That is often what necromancers would do. Necromancers would call up the dead, and they would be demons who would uh, pose as souls of those who have perished and speak to the necromancer. Mediums would usually be a mediator between the dead and speak on behalf of the dead. Uh, so some say that a demon disguised himself as Samuel. Uh, some say that she had faked the entire thing. Uh, mediums and Necromancers often play tricks, do they not? To get people in the right frame of mind to think that something is happening that's not really going on, that it's merely an illusion. So was this just an illusion? Well, there are many different takes on this account, and I am of the mind that it was, in fact, Samuel who had appeared, primarily because that's what the text says. Saul confessed it was Samuel, affirmed it was him, and Samuel's word, which he gives to Saul is consistent with all the words that he had spoken before, which now brings another problem and question. Did the necromancer's demonic practice work? Is she responsible for Samuel appearing? No. Necromancers, they may have the ability to summon demons. They no doubt have their own practices within the occult, often to their own demise but there is no evidence that necromancers can summon the souls of those who have died. They do not have power to bring the dead to life or remove the souls from the place which God has placed them. It is God that sends the dead to their eternal residence, 
And that which God has done, no man can undo and call forth. So no, this medium did not bring Samuel up from the grave. Rather, it was God. Now, to be clear, God is not approving of the witch or Samuel's sinful conduct. They are both in grievous sins, which God despises. Remember that it is an abomination. But God saw fit to bring Samuel up at this moment in time to confirm the Lord's rejection of Saul. I think that this text implies that this medium might possibly have even been a fraud, right? She screamed when Samuel appeared. This is not the response of someone who has done this before. Uh, to be clear, even though she may have been a fraud, note this, that even though she was a, pro a fraud, likely, her practice was still an abomination, still sinful, though fraudulent. So it was God's power, not hers, that brought Samuel from the dead. And so I want to say this, if this seems strange to you, it shouldn't. After all, God is sovereign. There are instances in Scripture that God has caused the dead to walk on the earth for a time. Recall Jesus' transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared. Let's not forget that when Christ returns, we will receive glorified bodies, being united to our souls to walk on the new earth. God alone has the power over death and the grave and has proven that he can resurrect the dead and bring souls if he deems fitting. So though this is a strange encounter, uh, this should not surprise us. <clears throat> After Samuel appears, she realizes the man who has come to her is Saul and she asks him, why did he, why did he deceive her? Now, I'm sure that she's terrified because not only does she think that her seance worked, but now it has worked for the first time, possibly, in the king's presence. What luck. It actually worked. Samuel's here. I'm dead. This king is going to kill me now. I'm sure she was expecting to be put to death, but he reassures her that he will not kill her and asks her, go on, tell me, what do you see? And she replies, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. She says she sees a God coming up out of the earth. This is a lowercase g. The word used here is Elohim, which is a plural. Some translations read gods like the KJV. Uh, but within the context of the sentence and the structure, uh, we can see that it's intended to be uh, singular, a God, and this can mean God as in God, the creator of all things, or it can mean earthly rulers or judges as well. So in this particular instance, uh, she sees the judge, Samuel. And so Saul sees Samuel and he bows himself and pays respect to Samuel. Verse 15 through 19. Then Samuel came. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. 
Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. So here again, Saul reveals his motive. Samuel asks, why have you disturbed me in bringing me up? And Saul says, because God has turned away from him. God will not speak to him, and the Philistines are coming to him in battle. And Samuel points out how ridiculous it is that Saul has turned from him. This is the irony. Again, why are you coming to the messenger of the very God who has turned away from you? Essentially, what can you expect of me? Do you think that a prophet of God will speak a word better to you than the God who the prophet speaks for? Samuel is not going to speak a word contrary to the God who sent him. And so Samuel goes on to give one final word of condemnation. He tells him that because of Saul's rejection of God's word, the Lord will give Israel over to the Philistines, and Saul and his sons will be with Samuel in Sheol, the grave, which is the realm of the dead. So what is Samuel's prophetic word to Saul? It's really no different than what he had told him in chapter 15. You have rejected God, and now God has rejected you. In chapter 15, Saul was commanded to go to the city of Amalek and devote everything to destruction. Instead of doing what he was commanded, Saul spared Agag, the king. They kept the best of the sheep, the oxen, calves, all that appeared good to them. And Samuel gave a word of judgment to him that he had rejected God, and so God has rejected him the kingdom will be torn from his hands. And so in this particular instance now, he's saying, uh, he's reminding him that David, what he already knows, David will now be the one who takes your place. And tomorrow you and your sons will die. You will be with me. Uh, Sheol is the realm of the dead. Uh, for those who had died before Jesus had been uh, before Jesus had died and been resurrected, both the righteous, those who had faith, and the unrighteous, those who did not place their faith in God, went to this realm. For the righteous, it's a place of blessing. For the unrighteous, it's a place of torment. Um, I'm not going to get in all that right now. If you have any questions, come talk to me or Pastor Dave. But the, let it suffice to say that Samuel tells Saul, tomorrow you and your sons are going to die and you will be with me in the grave. And this is what comes to pass in chapter 31. Saul ends up killing himself. The Philistines are coming closely upon him, and Saul fears death of the hands of his enemies. And so in order to keep from being mocked and ridiculed throughout the land by dying at the hands of his enemies, he takes his death upon himself and he commits suicide. And it's a tragedy. He tries to get a servant to do it, but a servant won't, so he takes matters into his own hands, and he falls on the sword himself. And as it turns out, Saul was mocked and ridiculed anyway. The, he suffered the same fate that he tried to escape by committing suicide. They cut off his head, hung his body to the wall, and he became an object of mockery and scorn for the Philistines. He fell prey to the thing he was afraid of.
verse 20 through 25. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw what he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with this woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she killed it. She quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. And so really, after Samuel's word to him, Saul lost all of his strength. He was defeated. He fell to the ground. God's final word to him was a word of judgment, and he left in despair. He did not want to eat, but the medium and the soldiers had convinced him to eat. And it was there that Saul ate his final meal. And after he ate, he went into the night. Saul's life serves as a warning to us. And the way it ends is quite grim. His sins had caught up with him. The start of sin doesn't seem so bad, but as he went on to reject the commands of God and went deeper and deeper into sin, it ends with him doing things I'm sure he never thought or dreamed that he would ever do. He, his life ends as he meets with a necromancer, he dines with her, and then he kills himself the next day. So what do we do with a text like this? Well, this text isn't so much about witchcraft and necromancy and seances or the occult, as we all might think, though that is an element. It's really meant to be a warning to those who reject God and his word and what becomes of those who reject God and his word. And so as we come to a close, I have just three things briefly. I know I've been going up here forever. See the advantages that Saul had in his life. Saul visibly belonged to the people of God. Saul had access to the word of God. Saul was given instruction. He was given warnings. And we too have these advantages, do we not? We visibly belong to the people of God. Each week we gather together and God speaks to us by his word. We have perpetual access to God's commands. We have his instruction within our very hands on a daily basis. And so what do we do with this great advantage? Do we submit to God's instruction? Do we take seriously his threatenings? How do we treat the word of God? Like Saul, where do we run to when we are overcome with troubles? Do we run to the gates of hell? Do we go to sin to help make us feel better whenever things seem to be not going our way? Or do we run to God as David did many times. Unbelievers, although you may not belong to the people of God presently, if you are here now, you are seated among them. Consider the great advantage that you have today, that you have had the very word of God read this morning. And so will you reject the word of God and perish in your sins to be denied by God? Or will you be like David, who acknowledged his sin to God, did not cover his iniquity, 
and the Lord forgave his iniquity and sin. And lastly, I don't want this to be a sermon with a focus on we need to do better. God gives warnings, and we should pay careful attention to those warnings. He uses them to keep his people so they might preserve in the faith, to continue on. But I don't want us to leave here thinking, if only I could do better than the Lord would have me. If only I could not be like Saul and be more like David. Because we don't need to do better, we need a Savior. Because we have not been good. We need a Savior, and that's what this text reminds us of. Ultimately, this account, this text reminds us that every earthly king over Israel has failed. King Saul had his sins, and they got the best of him to be rejected by God. King David had his sins as well. Again, he was a murderer and adulterer. And this text reminds us that we have sinned in similar ways. I have no doubt that we have seen some of the characteristics that we have seen in Saul within ourselves as we have considered the things that he has done. These sins of these earthly kings, which stain and tarnish their lives, they leave us looking to a better king, as it did the Israelites. We look for a mightier king, a perfect king from the line of David, over the true Israel who obeyed in every way that we have failed. He obeyed in all the ways that King David and Saul had failed. And it is in this King, Jesus Christ, that we have access to the Heavenly Father and the forgiveness of sins. We have hope that we have a great King, a mighty King, who is seated at the right hand of God the Father this moment. Uh, join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us today. We ask that if we are hypocrites, that if we do run to sin whenever we feel overwhelmed with troubles, that you would show us our error and that we would find our delight and hope in you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that we would not deal carelessly with the word of God as Saul did. How much better do we have than even he? That we have your very word, that we have Christ. We ask that you would do these things in us. In Christ's name, for his sake, amen.